Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. And we've been looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. But finishing Mark in our last episode, I now want to tell another Easter story that's only told in the Gospel of Luke. It's in Luke chapter 24, and it's the story of Emmaus. And when we talk about Emmaus in this episode, I want to attempt to solve a mystery and then also perhaps even give some new meaning or answer an obvious question. So I've got some work to do, but let's read the text first and see how we do. This is Luke chapter 24, beginning with the 13th verse. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find the body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets had declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things about himself in the scriptures. The story goes on to tell that Jesus was revealed to them when he broke bread. They saw that it was Jesus and then he vanished. And then the others went back to join the disciples and to proclaim the risen Lord. But first, I want to talk about the mystery of the story of Emmaus, and it's found in verse 13. They were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Well, there is a town about seven miles outside of Jerusalem that claims to be the biblical site of Emmaus. It has a beautiful crusader church there. It's an Arab-Israeli town called Abu Ghosh, and it has a church that was built in the 11th century that is just stunning, one of the prettiest churches in all the Holy Land with beautiful frescoes and, and beautiful floors. But the problem, the problem with this traditional site, as often happens with traditional sites, is there's no one, there's no way to prove that this is where the story happened. There's no way to know absolutely for sure. But the other problem is that there is a town called Emmaus. There's a town called Emmaus that was called Emmaus in the world of Jesus and even before. There's a town called Emmaus, only it's about 20 miles away. So you have a site seven miles away that claims to be this biblical site, and people have, have worshipped there for a thousand years. But then you've got a town called Emmaus, only farther out. It doesn't match the text. Now, there are some clues that gets me thinking that this may be the Emmaus. Um, one clue is that they have a late Roman church there. And I've said this to you in earlier podcasts. Sometimes when you go to the Holy Land, if you find a church that was built in the third or the fourth centuries, 
These churches were built to commemorate Bible sites, and they were built so long ago that they 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 were built with with fairly frequent oral memory, if you will. For instance, Peter's house in Capernaum is a church uh, is a church that was built over the site where it's believed that Peter lived. Well, there would have been people who knew people who knew people who knew people who knew that that would have been Peter's house. So there was some old graffiti, say from the. The, from the second century that people uh, worship there as Peter's house. And so because it's just so darn old uh, that, the, that the old church sort of points you to where you need to go. That's what I'm trying to say. There is a Roman church in Emmaus. Still, it doesn't solve the problem of not matching the text. And here's where, where it always helps to have a study Bible. Although I'm pretty sure most Bibles will have this footnote. The footnote goes like this. The text says that they were walking to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And if you look at your footnote, the Greek word for seven miles is 60 stadia. That's their unit of measurement, if you will, in the Greek language, 60 stadia equals seven miles. However, your study Bible, the Bibles that we have in our church here at St. Luke's, will say other ancient manuscripts say 160 stadia, which is 20 miles. So, there are some ancient manuscripts that do locate Emmaus uh, 20 miles away. So you have to ask yourself, what happened? Well, it's likely, knowing what we know about books in the ancient world, and remember, movable type, the Gutenberg Press, all that's a 1500s thing. This is the ancient world. So when the Gospel of Luke is written, books were both rare and slow and copied down by scribes. And it's very possible that a scribe, a monk, uh, sitting at a desk by candlelight, copying the Gospels, left off 100 and just wrote 60 stadia. And a crusader church was built on a mistake. 160 stadia, wrote it down to 60 stadia, and now you've got the disparity between 7 miles and 20 miles. Now, that I think that solves the mystery of Emmaus. Emmaus is the Emmaus that's always been Emmaus. But what about the question, why? Why Emmaus? See, all the Gospels tell us that Jesus was headed to Galilee. My favorite verse in, in, in the whole Bible is Mark 16, 7. I talked about it in the last episode. Uh, Jesus, it, the, Jesus is raised. The tomb is empty. There's a mysterious man in the tomb. Women are horrified. And the mysterious man says, go, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee, just as he told you. And it's my favorite verse because I feel like I'm Peter, right? We're all saved by grace. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter now no longer has to fear being the, the failure uh, that, he, that he was by denying his best friend three times. Peter can now become the rock upon which Christ builds his church. But make no mistake, the message is go to Galilee. John chapter 21, the entire chapter is devoted to Jesus in Galilee as the risen Jesus. He's by the shore of the lake eating fish over a charcoal fire, talking to the disciples as they uh, as they are um, fishing. Now, people wonder, why Galilee? You know, why did he go there? And I will tell you that if you've ever been to Galilee, of course it makes sense. It's the prettiest lake you've ever seen. It's the place that Jesus loved. It was his heart. But Galilee's also the place where he could communicate with the disciples without the noise of the city or the danger of the city, if you will. Uh, he could he could get them to center in Galilee. He could get them to uh, be focused in Galilee. Galilee is a place of mission. It's a place where where the twelve and Jesus uh, began, and it's also a place where he could send them off now into the world. All the gospels tell us that he was headed to Galilee after Easter, but Emmaus is in the wrong direction. So we've got to ask the question why. And to answer, I want to take us to a much older story. 
story goes like this. Book of First Samuel, chapters 4 through 6, we're told the drama of the time God's people lost the Ark of the Covenant. It goes like this. According to the Talmud, which is a commentary, a rabbinic commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures, we're told that the Ark rested for 369 years at a place called Shiloh in a tent, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Eli, the priest uh, who also raised the boy Samuel to become the mighty prophet, had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and apparently Hophni and Phinehas had a great idea, which was to bring the Ark into battle against the Philistines. Uh, Remember, Remember that Joshua carried the ark into the promised land and fought many, many battles uh, before settling uh, and dividing the land between the 12 tribes. So Hophni and Phinehas thought they would do the same thing, and they lose it. Uh, Not only did they lose the battle, they get killed, and a runner comes back to Shiloh to say that that, that to the priest Eli or Eli in Hebrew, uh, to Eli that his, his children are now dead, which upsets him greatly. But then when he finds out that the ark is gone, Eli falls down dead himself. It strikes him to the heart. So now the ark is in Philistine hands. And now things don't go well with the Philistines while they have the ark. Uh, they are afflicted with tumors and mice, much like the biblical plagues that were afflicted upon Pharaoh from their cities, Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. And I need to take a break here and, and explain to you who these people are. Who are the Philistines and why are they fighting God's people all the time? Philistines right, are the bad boys of the Old Testament. I mean, think about the Philistines that you know. Gosh, Goliath is a Philistine. Uh, Delilah is a Philistine. Uh, the Philistines kill King Saul. Uh, Philistines are always making trouble, fighting Samson. The Philistines are just, just always around, uh, kind of kind of the just the general enemy, right? Well, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 23, that they come from Kaftor, which is an ancient name for the island of Crete. So they were a European, um, perhaps Minoan, uh, sea people, uh, is another word for the Philistines, who were looking for a home because of a war uh, that happened in that part of the Mediterranean. And they were displaced people who arrived in that southern, southwestern part of Judea some 1,100 years before Christ. Uh, we have found, uh, we archaeologists have found, Iron Age graves and done DNA samples of the bones to find out that they are of European origin, uh, not Semitic origin. So that that de- definitely, with that Euro-distinct genetics, uh, anyway, makes this makes Deuteronomy chapter two what it says. It, it it confirms that they came from somewhere else. My point is that this is a collision course with the Hebrews, who also arrived to take the same land in the southwestern coastal region. In other words, they're the bad boys of the Bible because they're all competing for living space. Now, I remember traveling these cities last summer, looking for places where the ark had been, and I did ask my friend Edan, uh, what happened to the Philistines? I mean, they just sort of disappear from the Bible uh, pretty suddenly. You just don't hear about them anymore. They're only in the earlier stories, and it was explained to me that they disappeared in the Babylonian exile which is exactly what the Babylonians wanted to do, which makes me appreciate the Hebrew story with the Babylonian exile as a backstory of the Bible. It makes me appreciate what the Hebrews were able to pull off. Think about what the prophets warn again and again, that exile would come, that destruction would come because they wouldn't do right. They followed after false gods. They didn't take care of the poor. They weren't different in the way that God asked them to be different. They didn't say their prayers. They thought they had God in a box, and suddenly it's all gone. But to their credit, When they lost everything, they got busy and they got their religion. 
you could say that 600 years before Jesus, when the Babylonians took them far away, wanting to disseminate and and to displace them and create a neo-Babylonian culture, uh, this all monolithic, with, with only controlled by them, which was what what they wanted to happen, the Hebrews got busy. They wrote down the Bible, they kept their identity, and eventually they could go home. So it's it's remarkable to me that that the Hebrews were able to pull off what the Philistines couldn't pull off, which is to which is to keep their own nation in this time of exile. But now let's go back to the story. So the Philistines have got the ark, and it's like a hot potato. It doesn't belong to them. It's not their God. It's, it's, it's the God of the Hebrews, and they are afflicted terribly, much like Pharaoh would have been afflicted uh, with all of his plagues. And it goes from, from town to town to town until it eventually lands at a place called Ekron, which is seven miles away from the, from the national borders, if you will, between uh, what, would, what, be, what would become Judea and then the land of the Philistines. And so the plan is to put a cart with golden representations of tumors and mice, which is what they did back in those days. If you were sick, you would make a representation of what's bothering you, and you'd take it to the doctor. So you'd take them a model of a hand, if you will, and pray to the, pray to the healing God. Uh, they made representations of tumors and mice, two milch cows. A milch cow is a cow that is saved for its own milk, uh, carrying a, a, a yoke to a cart, carrying it along, pulling the ark along in this cart down a straight highway to a place called Bet Shemesh. Now, Bet Shemesh is fascinating because in 2019, and this is right before the COVID lockdown, archaeologists found a chamber. It's unlike anything else in, in Bet Shemesh, anything else in the village, carbon-14 dating uh, of the pottery pieces and the soil located exactly to the time of 1 Samuel chapter 6. There is a uh, two sacrificial stones. These sit right outside of this chamber. There's a chamber with benches along the sides so that uh, it, it's a representation of worship at, like, like they would have in the temple, a place for something to be sit, uh, to be seated in, in, a, in a facing each other and adoring something in the middle. Here's what I'm trying to say. There is a stone in the middle of this chamber that is slightly larger than the, the dimensions of the ark as it is found in Exodus 25, but still proportional. And it is what appears to be, appears to be the chapel reverencing the stone upon which the Ark of the Covenant sat. During the COVID lockdown, archaeologists found a stone upon which the Ten Commandments sat and was adored. In other words, the Ark was returned to the people of God here. Now, this is the lesson as it relates to us today. God is not a totem. The lesson that they learned was that God is not a totem. God is not a rabbit's foot to be used in battle. God is not a checkbox. God is not a, a, a magic act, right? They, they took the ark and they disrespected it by taking it into battle and they lost it for a time. But what we've seen now in First chapter, Samuel chapter 6 is they got it back. And it's a problem that they would face again and again and again. It's not just a Jewish problem. Uh, there's a mountain uh, near the Sea of Galilee, and I don't take groups there because nothing, quote, biblical happened there, but something very important happened there. On July the 4th, 1187, uh, a battle between all the crusader armies under the king of Jerusalem and, and against the sultanate of Saladin. It was, it was a final battle, if you will, uh, between the crusaders and the sultan, and it was a complete disaster. It ended with, it ended all significant crusader rule forever, uh, in the Holy Land, and for our purposes, uh, the reason why it's important is because they too carried a totem. They carried a rabbit's foot. 
they carried the true cross. Um, the true cross is something you've probably heard before. There are relics of the true cross throughout Europe. Most of these, if you ever date them or, or kind of find out about them, you figure out that they're a Middle Ages kind of ruse. But the idea of the true cross started with Helena in the early 4th century when she built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Helena was Constantine, the emperor's mother, and she believed that at that spot she found the piece of wood upon which Christ died. Now, that's kind of dubious, of course, uh, but they believed it. And for 800 years, uh, they believed that they had the true cross, and they carried the true cross, and they protected the true cross. And then at this battle in Hattin, they brought the true cross with them, knowing that the true cross of Christ would protect them. Well, not only did they lose the battle, but Saladin took the cross to Damascus, never to be found again. I find it very curious that the ship, the Russian warship that was lost uh, in battle in this Ukrainian-Russian war, also claimed to carry a reliquary with a sliver of the true cross upon it, which says something about the true cross. It says something about totems. God is not to be disrespected in this way. God is not to be merely a checkbox or an amulet. And we may do the same thing as modern Christian people if we think that our church membership is enough to keep us in or our, our own clean noses or, or whatever, our own little offerings that we make to make sure that we're square with the Lord. Uh, that's disrespecting uh, what God wants from us, which is a living, breathing relationship. And it brings us back now to the story of Emmaus and a possible answer. We may well locate Emmaus, okay, but the problem is that it's in the wrong direction from Galilee. Unless you look at pilgrim routes from the world of Jesus. Now, I'm sure the Romans had to think that the Jewish people were the strangest religion on planet Earth because for one time a year, for your entire life, you would walk to Jerusalem to worship. I mean, Jesus did that very thing. I mean, gosh, you would go three times a year if you could afford it or if you had the time, but at least one time a year, uh, people from the Galilee, for instance, would walk five days to Jerusalem in order to worship. I mean, it would, it would take them that long, and they would have three ways to get there. If you lived in Capernaum, you would walk down the Jordan River Valley, which is the lowest place on planet Earth. You start at 800 feet below sea level with the lake, down to 1,400 feet below sea level. It's a moonscape down there. If you don't stay near the water, you'll die. You take a right at Jericho. You climb a 3,000-foot grade uh, up out of the hole to get to the city. Hard, hard walking. There was an easier route that went right down the gut, which is right down the, the through Samaria, and it's, and it's green up there, and the breeze is up there, and there's some water up there. And I remember asking my friend Don the question, why didn't we just, why didn't they just walk down the middle way, which would be a lot, lot prettier anyway? And he said, well, that's where the Samaritans live, and they hate you, uh, which also makes it ironic that the first parable that Jesus would tell in the Gospel of Luke after he decides to go back to Jerusalem for the final time to die would be the parable of the good Samaritan. So they know about Samaritans and the danger of Samaritans. Well, that's two ways to get there. You've got the Jordan River Valley and you've got the Samaritan Road. And then you had a road on the far west. It was a coast road, not a road for people from the Galilee and not even a road for people from Nazareth, but rather a road maybe from people coming down from what is now Lebanon uh, called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And it's a western road, and it's not a road that Jesus would have likely taken if he ever took it. It would be very, very occasionally. Uh, these other pilgrim roads, you would know everybody and every stop because you did it every year of your life. You had to go to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, but the Via Maris would not be a road uh, for Jesus. And I want you to hold that thought and remember what Jesus said. Okay. All the Gospels say that Jesus went to Galilee. 
But remember what Jesus says to Mary in John chapter 20, don't touch me. He's secretive. He's quiet. He's he's elusive. He needs to get to Galilee and away from the city so that he can tell them who he is and who they are. But he's got to get away from the city because Jesus can be just as dangerous in his resurrected form or even more so. He could be used as a totem for battle, a symbol for a new army. And Jesus didn't rise for that. The revolution could have started around the resurrected Jesus right away. But Jesus rose from the dead to save us from something else, to save us for something better, and he took a pilgrim road so that no one would know him. Emmaus sits right there on the Via Maris. Emmaus sits on a pilgrim road back to the Galilee, but a circuitous route so that Jesus might go uh, undetected, uh, unnoticed, so that he might walk uh, in a way uh, that would keep him safe uh, until he could get to the disciples and explain to them how it was going to be. These people, stories of totems and this pilgrim route on the West all points to the fact that Emmaus is exactly where it's supposed to be. And the story makes entire sense to me uh, in the in the context of this of this very human problem. God doesn't want to be our rabbit's foot. God wants to be our savior and in relationship with us. And it takes a little living to figure this out. It takes a little time to understand who God is and who we are. But we are saved by grace, and we're saved by grace daily in a daily walk. God is no checkbox, but rather, but rather our our eternal and constant presence, our 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 ends, not our means. Friends, this story is so real and so true, and points to the truth of Easter. God wants to save us for heaven. Yes. God wants to save us right now, today. It just takes a minute of quiet to hear Him. Well, friends, I hope that's gotten you thinking about Emmaus in a new way. And uh, I am taking a group to Israel and we'll be back with new learnings and new stories and a new series on Jericho Road. Hope you'll join me. Thanks.